0: Hey, thanks for being with me on the show today. In today's show, I'm in conversation with a lady called Dr. Nicole Lepera. Her new book that's just come out, that's gone straight to number one New York Times bestseller list, is called How to Do the Work. Nicole is a leading voice right now in the world in the self-healing, holistic approach to life space because she is taking this holistic approach to our humanity, not chopping us up into bits where we go to the doctor for our body and the psychiatrist for our brain and the psychologist for our mind and the church for our spirituality, but a holistic approach to our humanity, which I think is so needed. We talked about trauma and our definition of that and how we all actually carry some trauma in us and are unaware of it, about the ego and our egoic identity and the dangers of that, about something fascinating called the poly vagal nervous system you really want to know about that it's fascinating reparenting finding your tribe creating boundaries it is a brilliant conversation she's not only a great writer she's a great articulator of what are complex things often but she has this gift of making them simple as you're going to hear in the show today thanks for being here leave me a comment a review and if you don't subscribe hit subscribe and become part of the tribe thanks for being here enjoy Nicole for being with me on the show today and first of all huge congratulations on the book and on it becoming so quickly a number one new york times bestseller how do you feel about that
1: it's mind-blowing i'm still trying to figure out how i feel paul i very very grateful very happy that this the book is now in the hands of people self-healers around the world so grateful i think is the number one word that comes to mind has
0: it surprised you that uh, number one bestseller has it surprised you nicole if so why if not why not
1: Um, I think from when I first signed online, you know, two plus years ago now creating the account, um, I went on initially without expectation for who would care as I began to share my truth began to share my story. Um, quite early on I saw indication of how universally resonating a lot of what I was talking about was the followers of course were growing and people from around the world um, were were clicking like and were you know kind of acknowledging that they were in resonance that they were living very similar journeys so from that point forward I think I committed myself um, to the journey to professing if you will the message of holistic healing so yes and no Um, like I said I I I intuit it Um, how important this stuff is for all of us. So I think to, you know, just speaking as someone who a decade ago, I I wouldn't even have been talking about a book being in my future. So that level of it is still very surprising. The fact that I have a book that can be deemed the number one bestseller, of course.
0: Well, I think too, I, I, I really want to appreciate and thank you for, and I don't mean to sound patronizing, but for being a woman in this space, you're probably more aware than I am. Now and it's probably changed in recent years since I came into this space. You know, when I came into this space 10, 15 years ago, it was Eckhart Tolle and Gary Zucker, Seat of the Soul, and Michael Singer, Untethered Soul, um, who actually came to my attention through Oprah because she had them on her show. So it was a woman that opened uh, the door to them in terms of global attention. And I I feel this has been kind of a male dominated sphere, I think, anyway, till recent years. So I also am so grateful to you stepping up into this space as a woman do you feel that's still unusual
1: um i think now that you're you're kind of mentioning it i think about just women in in leadership and business in general a lot um which i do think you know historically is skewed a bit more male um sure. it i think i was struck when i heard you say that at first um, because in the clinical psychology field there are a lot of us women um i think even at at this point in the more recent future i I mean in the more recent past i think in the way back past it was definitely a male dominated profession um in so much i think i can then go as far to say a lot of the core ideas then were developed again um, from males from the male gender but coming through school paul I was around the majority of women and most of my colleagues were women. So, you know, in the psychological field, I think there are a lot of women though, thinking about women in leadership or women, you know, talking as globally I am or at the scale I am, I do think that pretty generally, pretty universally, um, women are doing so more frequently now um, than historically. Yeah,
0: I think it's awesome. You know, one of the things I do around the world, Nicole, inspired by people like you over the years has been to bring to my audience the awareness of the need for us to, as you talk about, live from the inside out. And I have an observation. I want to ask you about this. Um, I think we're entering a whole new world era and age to not exaggerate at all, I don't think, which is, I think, why your book has gone so huge. Because, you know, having come as humanity through the agricultural age, industrial age, information age, what do we call what is coming next? I certainly know COVID has thrown up this debate much more in terms of people having a lot more awareness of the internal world because all that external stuff was taken from us. Do you think we're entering, it's like, it's like an age of an, a new age of enlightenment to me, don't you think? Do you feel that?
1: The word that comes to mind for me, Paul, that I'll add to this is awakening. Um, I there you think we awakening. That is the age that we're entering and whatever that means for each of us individually, it does mean different things, what we're awakening to. Um, some of us you know not having the external distractions having very much external induced now insecurities right where we're suffering financial losses losses of humans relationships Um, anytime our our stabilization or our grounding anytime we're destabilized it does i think initially offer us the opportunity to turn within Um, so some of us are you know the COVID induction of this when i don't have my external focus um, now i'm left With whatever is there and for many of us there's deeper woundings that are becoming activated Um, so our path looks different but i think quite universally the word that comes to mind for me is awakening Um, we're seeing ourselves our lives um, a bit more clearly possibly and then of course that's creating an opportunity for us to those of us to actualize change to begin to make new choices Um, so i think that's what's what's happening the internet i think is a tool that many of us are now using um, to have these conversations quite globally and to begin to share these stories of awakening, really normalizing it for, I think, those of us that are going through the experience. Do
0: you think has had some hidden gifts, Nicole, in this whole space as we've kind of been forced into our own company, we've kind of bumped into ourselves more than ever yeah. before?
1: Yeah, and like I was saying, anytime our our, our normal, right, the, the typical daily habits that we do day in and day out, we get up at the same time, we take the same route to work, anytime our, our normal is interrupted, as I say, that's challenging for all of us humans, because to be human, we really do seek the familiar, as much as those of us hated the job that maybe we drove to each and every day, it was our familiar, we knew what to expect, we knew what would happen once we arrived there. And we prefer that quite universally as humans to the unknown, right? The possible threat that could lurk around the corner. So this is why quite universally transitions are difficult. Those of us that go from school age to work age, or you know, we're single and then we become married, or we have a child, anytime our normal is disrupted, it challenges our familiar, our drive to be in that familiar. So that's the minimum of what's happening. And then of course, like we're talking about it gets further complicated when there's loss involved, when the people with whom that we're home with now all the time are, you know, part challenging relationships for us. And of course, there's many other iterations of the difficulty that come.
0: Don't you think awakening (laughs) and increased consciousness is, it is its own affliction and curse as well as a blessing, right? You know, this ignorance is bliss, And the more awake and woke you become, the more you wish you didn't know what you knew.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I talk a lot about the discomfort. So not only is doing something unfamiliar going to be an inevitable, uncomfortable part of transforming or creating change, for many of us, that which we're seeing and witnessing now and maybe experiencing much more consciously, does come with it other difficulties. There's value for many of us, and I know this firsthand. I lived a large majority of my life until I began to become conscious and to heal from my spaceship, as I call it. Detached, dissociated, safely protected from all of the thoughts and feelings that I was accumulating in my body and my emotional system for 30 plus years. So as I began to tune in to what was going on in my physical body, to all of the energies that were you know, coursing through me, It was uncomfortable to say the least so distraction our very conditioned way of being has value and i often urge us who those of us who are going on a journey of transformation to do two things anticipate the difficulty of change that we will have resistance it isn't as logical as we think oh well of course i want to have this future why can't this be an easier shift it won't be Um, so part of it is acknowledging the difficulty of change and creating the opportunity to Change, nonetheless.
0: It's like we were. It's like we were born into this um, design of a changing world. We're born into a change. Change is like part of our human condition, and you know, at the same time, we hate change. What the yes. hell is that? <laughs> yes,
1: yes, we hate change because the uncertainty, right, of what is what what possibly could happen, is much more threatening than what we know. And this is again where it's not logical. Um, I know a lot of people who, you know, engage in repetitive relational patterns, or maybe even, you know, self-harming patterns that actually create harm in the self or to the self. Yet again, for us, for those people, that becomes their familiar. the The practice of doing something different is uncomfortable. Let alone all of the feelings that many of us have. You know, I, I, I often offer the onion analogy, um, because it is very complicated. It is like peeling back all of the layers of the onion to get right at for many of us, the core, the pain, the wounding based on mm-hmm. our very real earliest lived experiences.
0: I read the book. I think it's fantastic. I'm so glad the timing of the book allowed me to read it before we got to chat together. And uh, it is just soulful of so many gems. And I really appreciate you writing it. I wanted to ask you a few questions about the book. And first of all, this term that you use of holistic living, what do you mean by that to the people that have not heard that term before?
1: I appreciate you asking, Paul, um, because I, I've for as long as I can remember, heard the term holistic, was attracted to this idea of holistic, you know, healing and, and typically the medical field is where I first um, was introduced to it, though I never really heard it fully applied to psychology, to the to the the, the story of the theory of the mind. Um, so what holistic means to me. And for me, I saw that as being a very big limitation, the old model of working, this idea that our mind is somehow separate from our physical body. And I just don't believe that to be true. Um, yeah. And I believe when we're working in that very unidimensional or kind of silo approach way, right? going to a doctor of the mind like myself for me- mental issues and going to a medical doctor for anything doing with our body, um, I don't think we're, we're setting ourselves up to more fully heal. So holistic to me, means honoring the interconnectedness of our being. The fact that we do have a physical body um, with a nervous system and all of the physiology that you know, kind of is, is wrapped up around that experience of being human, the physical. Um, we have an emotional body. We have energies and hormones that course through us that are you know, messengers, as I call them, of you know, things that are happening in our world. They give us information. I also believe, and this also applies to the conversation of awakening, I think we're all becoming aware of a uniqueness or an essence or the thing that makes me me and obviously differentiates me, Paul, from you. Whether or not we wanna apply you know, a more kind of spiritual or soul-based label to that or not, I think many of us as humans are waking up to that there is a uniqueness in each of us. So I would go ahead and call that our spiritual self. Um, so holistic to me means honoring the interconnectedness of physical, mental, emotional, right? And spiritual, and understanding that a lot of the cycles that we're stuck in as humans, living, you know, in, in those conditioned patterns, are a result of a deeper imbalance in one or all of those areas.
0: Why isn't you know why isn't this mainstream?
1: We are still in a world, aren't we, where,
0: where it's chopped up into bits? You go to the doctor for your physical body, and then the psychiatrist for your brain, and the psychologist for your mind, and yes. the spiritual. Why is it still chopped up? Because still still people that are operating on what's called alternative medicine are still viewed with skepticism yes. by mainstream medicine. And we still seem to be so slow to wake up to this holistic approach.
1: Yeah. And and you know, I, I the why is is, you know, we can there's a million different whys that people could theorize the why. Um, it wasn't always the case when you really do look back into what psychology was, even psyche, right? Study of the soul um there have been you know practitioners who have been professing these more holistic models for quite some time though to speak to your point it hasn't necessarily been embraced um, in the mainstream world so when I speak of clinicians like myself and even the medical professionals because I have somewhat of an awareness of what medical school was like for them um we really can't be faulted we really aren't given the full set of tools to really help the clients that are coming into our treatment rooms whether again you're in the medical field as a medical doctor or like myself we really are operating on many of us what we were taught in school and the reality is the body was completely um, absent from my program nutrition because that again is located in the body was not even mentioned um, we were never urged to ask our clients what their lifestyle looked like in the day in and day out and again this was because we never believed that the body played a role um, thankfully, now we're starting to understand, particularly the role of our nervous system, um, they're starting to become more kind of tra- a push for more trauma-informed approaches. Um, that's the language that is used in the field, though, pretty globally, it it's hasn't yet been adopted um, into the mainstream schooling model. So the why, you know, I can't theorize as to what, what the why is, um, I just know that it is the reality that many of us, especially in the West here, are, are living in our schooling systems.
0: Are you familiar with Johan Harry's book, Lost Connections?
1: I don't think I've read that one.
0: Um, Johan Harry is a British author, and I ask it because he is his book is really dedicated to a study around the world to come to the conclusion that the depression is perhaps far less to do with the lack of serotonin in the brain and far more to do with the erosion of human connection and loneliness mm-hmm. and so on
1: yeah I mean connection our interpersonal relationships you'll always hear me citing the reality um, that as humans that we are interpersonal creatures we need relationships um, to survive really again our, our basic needs in childhood and infancy were contingent upon us being in relationship. As human infants, we cannot meet our physical needs on our own. We need some version of a caregiver. You know, regardless of how attuned they are to our needs or not, we need them to meet our physical needs. And then of course, that evolves into our emotional needs. Those of us that have supportive connections can tolerate stress more, get get sicker less frequently. Um, So relationships are incredibly important. Um, what I've come to, to think and talk and speak about in terms of relationships and a very, my intention of the final chapter in my book um, is entitled interdependence. And it really is talking and highlighting the importance of relationships. However, as you go through my book and my work, um, I'm talking about a specific type of relationship, one in which we are authentically expressing ourselves. Because what I know about humans, myself particularly, I've had over the course of my now almost 40 years, many relationships however the question becomes am i showing up in my authentic self am i expressing my thoughts my opinions me in any given moment with my feelings and my beliefs and my passions or am i like the larger majority of many of us wearing a mask playing a role Right. So the relational work that I'm suggesting that we do as healers or as self healers is to learn how to relate to others authentically. And yes, I believe the lack of connection. I believe it starts with self. Many of us can't connect authentically with others because we don't really, truly, intimately know ourself. We're protecting ourselves, denying our own feelings, not allowing ourself to be us before we can then obviously gift who we are to someone else there's also theories of depression if we want to throw the body into this conversation where we now know that this ser- the serotonin right dopamine everything that we're talking about the neurotransmitters that are specifically um, part of a conversation when we're talking about depression or anxiety we once thought they were produced solely in our brain right so we would take medications to increase the production of these neurotransmitters in our brain We now know that our stomach, our gut, plays just as an important role um, in producing those chemicals, which now implicates our nutrition. How well is our gut functioning? Building on this just a bit more, we, we now know that when our body is inflamed, when our nervous system is activated, when we have possibly damage to our gut, which a lot of us are causing, unbeknownst to ourselves with the food we're eating, with the chemicals that we're ingesting, a lot of the depression in particular can be an effect or a result of inflammation. So again, there's many different pathways to having the lived experience, if you're like myself of anxiety or many others of depression that have different Um, imbalances, to use the language I used offered earlier, that aren't, as we once believed, a deficit in our brain that can be resolved by a pill, right?
0: Don't you think that, um, you talk in your book, Nicole, about the ego and the soul, and don't you think that part of our problem as humans is that from birth, we are separated from ourselves by this egoic laboring culture we are all born into even before you're born you are labeled as male or female or black or white or rich or poor and so on and so on so before you're born you are born with labels and then in nurture hundreds more are attached to you so this battle to find your authentic self from birth is huge and I meet people all over the world when I talk about this who are in midlife and beyond and still don't know who this person is, but are aware, i.e. midlife crisis language, that they've lived the first half of their life not being true to themselves, but not knowing who themselves is. Can you speak a little bit to this egoic versus soul identity that we are trying to figure out?
1: To keep keep ego, you know, in terms of definitions simple, because Mm. there's many different definitions, and ego, I think, is one of those concepts that we might've met in a book, Um, but not really understood the practical application. Well, what does the ego look like in my life? So as I often do, I try to simplify a lot of these concepts so that we can gain a working knowledge um, to build that bridge between concept into action. So the simplest definition that I like to offer about what an ego is, and to speak to your very eloquently um, word at points, It is a story it's a story about us or who we imagine ourselves to be that yeah is impacted by how we look our gender our culture upon birth though also paul can complicate things further can even begin to be created by our parents our family when they just imagine when they gain news right of the pregnancy for a lot of us this story is created then oh, right, you know, thinking of of in our families of, oh, a little boy is coming, I imagine he'll be maybe just like his father, if the father is present. right, all of these stories that we're creating now about this person, who's not even here yet, we have actually no idea who this being will be in self expression. And yes, the byproduct of our ego of our stories of, you know, our self identified labels such as male, female, whatever culture it is, or it isn't that we are, you know, identifying with is separation. Um, and you know, some of us will go as far to say the second we come onto this planet in a separate body, we are taken away from our oneness. Um, I believe that's what our soul is. It's it's a unified field where we are connected to everyone and everything around us. And yeah, there are many lived experiences of separation where we begin to solidify who we imagine ourselves to be based on our very real lived experiences. The problem being We as adults, many of us, until we get to our midlife life crisis or our dark night of the soul, as I call Mm -hmm. it, the results, all of the accumulated effects for some of us physical, for some of us emotional, of living in that constant state of disconnection. I know I felt it. I had no idea who I was, even though I witnessed all of these boxes having been checked, of all of these accomplishments that I thought were who I was, yet I felt empty. I felt unfulfilled. I felt disconnected and I felt very confused. If you would have asked me about myself at that time, you know, some 10 plus years ago, I would have not been able to answer questions, Paul. I had no idea who I was. Um, So for a lot of us, it can be destabilizing, right? Pulling back the stories of our ego to allow in our more full self, our more full self-expression. Um, and like you're beautifully saying, for many of us, this begins in utero. Um this this is colored by how we look, by the families we're born into, and by our very real lived experiences.
0: I have eight grandchildren, Nicole, and uh at least two of them are weird. <laughs> <laughs> they are.
1: Great, congratulations.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's not a bad ratio to our eight, but one of them is a a, a girl and she is nine turning ten and A couple of years ago, the word autistic started to be used about her. So again, another label. And once that word is used, it panics the family and panics people. And she obviously is a difficult child. Then the language becomes to fit into the one size fits all education system. There's no celebration of her unique intelligence that is not fitting the one size fits all. So she begins already at seven, eight to feel something's wrong with her. Something needs fixing, and and of course, that's all what we shouldn't be doing, but that's what I'm trying to um, say to our listeners, that people have versions of that going on at all stages of life, uh, a good person, or a bad person, or a Christian, or a non-Christian, or, you know, Democrat, Republican, or whatever these egoic labels are, and so as you say, it's in utero, but in the formative years, I got really angry with the way it was being framed by the school.
1: Yeah, our school system, especially too out here in the West, are very, you know, one size fits all model. Um, you know, hearing about your, your granddaughter, um, what comes to mind, my, my partner, um, she tells me in, innumerable stories of her experiences in schooling in particular, where she too was a bit different, perhaps even well. could have been considered on a spectrum of sorts. Um, and has carries incredible trauma um, around being told day in and day out from everyone from her teachers to her family um, wonderings of why aren't you producing why aren't you doing why aren't you performing and to this day you know still a lot of pain comes up because all of her beautiful unique talents and there are many that she has just didn't fit inside that system and weren't rewarded in that way and unfortunately it it the way she was, wasn't actually didn't feel like it was valued. And so a lot of us come, um, have had experiences, for some of us, it isn't even have to be as direct as in the school system, right? Right. Indirectly in our family. Um, I know, you know, in in small ways, I would hear statements like us, my last name LaPera, us LaPeras do this, we do this, we don't do that. Very a lot of indirect, even sometimes our personality, right? We're not very loud people, are we, you know, what if i feel like i want to be a loud person in this moment now the message as a child i'm being given or an outgoing person is that to do that i'm not actually part of now the most important clan right which is my family and again in childhood going back to what I was talking about earlier, those bonds are life. So instead of continuing to be us, and again, I'm really simplifying all of this, we amend ourselves, we begin to wear those masks, we begin to modify who we are and how we are so that we can still be a part of those earliest groups, which are the most important to us. The issue being, we never evolve out of that the way that we begin to relate, adapt, the adaptations that we're living that most often begin in our core family units become our very patterned way of being. We repeat them. We become the caretaker in childhood, right? The little girl caretaker, for instance, becomes the caretaker among her friend unit when she has peers and as she ages into adulthood. So the issue being, and I talk about this a lot, the habits and patterns formed in childhood, our ego included these stories that at one point were incomplete, were adaptations born for many of us out of pain, become our marching orders into adulthood, unless of course, we become conscious, we view and we witness all of these older patterns that don't serve us. And then more importantly, we create the space to make new choices to give ourselves the opportunity to now march toward a future that's not just a replication of that past.
0: I have another grandson, he's John. he's about 11 now, and he's been very OCD since he was born. He would line his toys up forensically, yes. and then he'd leave the room. But if you moved a toy and he wasn't in the room, he kind of knew that you touched his stuff even while he wasn't in the room. I mean, what superpower is that? Who knows, but no one saw it as that. He has this photographic memory, he's very introverted and so on and so on, which in his early years, um, is difficult to manage and to pair because his sister, Sienna, uh, she has her own weirdness. She is kind of from morning till night. She is, um, you know, either Ariel or she's the chick from Frozen. And she's either that or she's naked in terms of what she wants to wear. <laughs> so you're managing, you know, uh, Jonah with his OCD and his sister with her flair for dressing fancy. And, you um, these two kids doing life together. And I watched their parents struggling to parent them as it were, to be as normal as they can be with him. And I just, you know, realized that this kid is unique and we should create space for him and hold space for him. And I said, look, I know it's a nightmare now, but let's just stay with this kid. Something brilliant's happening. And then when he's about 20, give me him for a week and I'm going to take him to Vegas.
1: you <laughs> will <laughs> be like that. my rain man. Yeah, right. Well, Jonah. So is that was that his name? I I can share with you quickly, Paul, that Jonah sounds a lot like me, little girl, Nicole, um, as as my my very, my very loving friends in high school when I started to have them over my house. Um, very much similarly, my dresser, my bureau had everything lined up to my liking. Um, and they too would find it amusing to if I would go to use the bathroom or go downstairs to get us something to eat, I would come back up and they similarly would move just one thing to see if I noticed. Um, and I would just similar to Jonah all the time with increasing agitation. So Um, I, I had lived that childhood. So if it's any solace on the other side to those of you, parents who have similar Jonas, um, that, yeah, there is a lot of uniqueness. You're also highlighting something that I get asked about a lot in terms of parenting. Um, Mm -hmm. how do we parent, you know, other humans that are similar to us that are dissimilar to us and that in their growing and developing are activating us and our own wounds. Um, and it is incredibly challenging because more often than not, when a, when a parent right, is struggling to like you're saying, hold space, let Jonah be Jonah in this moment, it's because of something going on deeper for the parent. right. Chances are the parent might have lived a similar experience on either end of it, or there might likely is a deeper wounding that the parent is reacting to themselves. Just like we do in, human, in relationships with our adult partners, My partner for me, Lolly, um, that I was describing earlier, is probably one of the most challenging relationships. There are many moments where I'm activated given whatever dynamically is happening between her and I. Same applies for children. As a parent, we can become activated by our child as well. So obviously when we're thinking about how to parent, um, it is complicated. My suggestion always is the same doing the work of healing, becoming aware of yourself, knowing in that moment when you feel compelled, right, to, to to say or do something with your child and making sure that you are consciously wanting to make that choice and not coming from that more reactive place. Because more often than not, there is something deeper going on when we're feeling challenged by anyone in our life, our children included.
0: Let me ask you a little bit, uh, Nicole, about emotions and the management of our emotional life. You talk a lot in the book, about that and your framing of that. And um, do you agree with this statement, this idea, that emotions are data, they are not directives?
1: Yes, 100 A lot
0: of people that I, um, that I try to help in this area and my own internal work has been to create space between an incoming emotion before it suddenly takes on a behavior or a language um, or a default mode it's, it seems that we struggle to find any border control between an incoming rogue emotion and before it gets in, it takes on a meaning and becomes a rogue, you know, illegal alien, as it were, in our internal ecosystem. So what do you, how do you help people figure out the difference between an emotion doesn't mean you need to jump in and do drama around it or give it a meaning or a name and it becomes a new default behavior?
1: Yeah, what you're what you're describing here, where Paul is, is so is so interesting, because typically, what we're having the emotion and reaction to isn't the event that happened. It's our often more often than not unconsciously assigned meaning. Right. So I use I use an example often, and I, I share in my book um, about for me how dirty dishes um, were, were a huge activator, as I call it for me um and what i what i began to understand it wasn't the presence of dishes per se that was the issue when i would come home and, and see them on the counter or wherever they would be It was what my mind was saying about those dishes so for me i'll share my example upon seeing the dishes um, one of my core narratives born out of a wound from my childhood. um, Being born to a emotionally unavailable mother who herself was very preoccupied with her own anxiety had very little to give to me outside of us bonding around stress emotionally, that is. so one of my course of wounds is this feeling of aloneness, and the language my mind has assigned to it, and we all assign different languages, is I'm not considered. So what I came to realize when I would see those dishes, and again, to paying attention, turning that spotlight of attention to my mental world allowed me to, to witness this narrative that was quite recurrent. And what I saw then was, as soon as my mind saw the dishes, my eyes saw the dishes, I did apply a meaning, oh, I'm not considered that dish is an example of me not being considered. Now the reaction I'm having, everything from hurt to rage, if I'm honest, like let a, given my resource level, actually came from the meaning that I was assigning. So that's an, an important piece of information. Um, again, understanding that for all of us that meaning typically did come from a very real lived experience, though understanding that we are applying meanings to everything that we're experiencing allows us the space to begin to reframe to assign another meeting. Now, it's not as easy as that because an emotion also lives in our body. It has a nervous system state of activation more often than not attached to it. It has hormones, it has energy changes and shifts. This is again where we have to have a conversation about working holistically, right? That means in that moment not only so For instance, I saw my narrative very clearly very early on didn't mean that the next time I saw the dishes, I was like peace and Zen. Oh, it doesn't have to mean I'm not considered in that moment and I and I can navigate it differently. Absolutely not. All of that wash of feelings was still there right? Because it's stored in my unconscious, I practiced it so much. So seeing the dishes I could offer myself, Nicole, this is not you not being considered at all. My body was still my heart rate was still increasing, I still felt like I wanted to throw the dish at my partner's head. Right? So now we need to teach ourselves in a new embodiment, we need to embody choice, right? Embody for some of us taking a couple deep breaths, moving ourselves from leaving the situation, because for some of us, we need time. We need to actually de-escalate from that really strong emotion to give myself the opportunity to not throw the dish this time right, right. and to take a more peaceful approach and i highlight that because for a very long time this also applies to a conversation we were having at the start of this mm. thoughts alone can are powerful i devote a whole chapter in the book to the power of belief the power of our mm. mind though for many of us they're not enough especially when our bodies are stuck in these certain levels of physiological dysregulation. This is where we need to do more than just reframe this cup into meaning something other than I'm not considered. We actually need to embody a new experience in those moments. That's where the practice of regulating ourself, right? Is important.
0: Talk a little bit, you mentioned uh, in chapter four about the vagus nerve, I found that fascinating. That this massive game-changing nerve in the body, this sort of primary freeway in the body, we don't know about it. Um, it's not a term that's common. Um, but this polyvagal theory that you speak about in Chapter 4, talk a little bit about that, would you, Nicole, for a minute?
1: I'd be happy to because this actually follows the conversation that we were just having. Right. The way to to regulate our body um, is through harnessing the power of that nerve. Um, We all have a nerve. It's called the vagus nerve. Just again, simply it connects our brain stem and it it innervates. It contains all of the major organs all the way down through our digestive system, our gut. Um, which means it's the major highway that messages travel, um, nerve-based messages. We have many different message systems. I mentioned a couple earlier, hormonal, energetic, right? When our nerves are firing, they're usually traveling down that that freeway, connecting, again, our brain to all of our major organs. Um, So harnessing the power, it's essentially how we shift, and again, I'm really simplifying this, from our state of activation, our fight or flight, a lot of us probably have heard that language, right? How we keep ourselves safe from real or imagined threats to our parasympathetic mode or the state where we can rest, our body can rest, it can sleep, it can digest our food and where we're open and receptive to creating bonds, authentic bonds, like we were talking about earlier with other people. A lot of us don't have flexibility to deal with a stress, fight or flee, whatever it is that it requires in the moment, and then to return back to that baseline. Most of us are stuck. We're either stuck in fight or flight, or we're, we're so deactivated, um, we're stuck in that kind of hypoactivation where we have no energy, um, we're stuck in that parasympathetic state. We wanna be able to flexibly go back and forth to deal with stress when it's there, only when it's there, not when we're imagining it to be there, not for the decades that some of us are living in these stress responses, and to go back to that very receptive, open place. And we can create that flexibility for those of us who don't have it, particularly through many different exercises, but you'll always hear me talking about breath work, Um, Mm -hmm. through harnessing, through doing two things, paying attention to what our normal rhythm of breathing is, can give us clues into what state of activation we're in, If you tune in, if I were to ask you to put a hand on your chest and put a hand on your belly right now and to observe, and it probably will be very faint, what your normal rhythm of breath is, what's moving as your body is breathing itself, which it does outside of our awareness, day in and day out to keep us alive, most of us will have the answer being our, our chest. We're in a very shallow state of breath. That for many of us might be indication that we're in that state of activation. We're ready to fight or flee. Um, So the breath we really want to begin to cultivate is a deeper breath um, where we're either breathing down to our bellies or our diaphragm, as we call it, maybe putting a hand and actually teaching ourselves how to breathe from that deep place. Because for many of us, our bodies do need to learn. Um, It is difficult. So learning how to deeply breathe from the belly or learning how to control our breath so that we can practice a long gating our out breath, our exhalation. And when we do either of those two things, we're like manually activating, we're helping our vagus nerve, we're stimulating it, and we're activating that parasympathetic switch. Now, of course, here's where I have to suggest that we practice consistently, the word that we all love to hate. Um, This isn't as a lot of us like to do, the back, you know, the back pocket tool for when I need it in the moment, and then I forget about my breathing entirely. To set ourselves up to succeed, say in the moment where the dirty dishes, right, are my number one enemy, and to be able to do, like I said, calm my body so that I can create a new choice in that moment for myself, I have to teach myself how to consistently harness the power of my breath.
0: Um, one of the game-changing uh, things for me in the work I've been doing is in the area of self-awareness. Um, I know you don't speak about it specifically in the book as a subject, but clearly uh, implicit in everything that you talk about. And your own journey has been this discovery of this level of consciousness, if that's what it is, of self-awareness. The ability to know that you are not the thoughts, you're the person having the thoughts is so easy to say. That sentence is so easy to say. But I think it's taken a good 20 years to figure out the reality of that and the gift of that. But apparently 90% of us uh, have little or no self-awareness. It's such a rare commodity and yet such a game changer, don't you think?
1: Absolutely. And the reason why we have little to no self-awareness is because we haven't practiced we actually right. have allowed that subconscious part of our brain. Um, it lives in a different region. It has different, you know, um, brain structures attached to it. We're not firing up the place where our consciousness lives, the prefrontal cortex. And like anything, right, any organ that we don't use, it it doesn't work, right? It it can. Our brain, our bodies are neuroplastic. We can fire up those neurons that will begin to wire together. But for a lot of us, I think about it in terms of a muscle and the gym. Right our prefrontal cortex where our consciousness lives for many of us humans just aren't practiced and I think here's where I just want to mention just a a quick difference, because when I hear people. um, Speaking about the work and this idea of self awareness, I, I hear and I see a lot of times that word gets interchangeably used with this idea of self analysis right, or endlessly scrutinizing oneself with obviously a criticism being, oh, if you're doing the work always, are you always just in self-analyzing mode? Are you really even living? And I just wanna acknowledge a difference between living as the awareness, as the observer of our thoughts that can come and go, and that level and that this type of self-analyzation that I think is being talked about in this other version, which is another version of distraction, of living in the thinking mind right so we want to harness the awareness that isn't kind of from those repetitive thoughts where we're analyzing or where we're you know picking apart every thought we're having and wondering where it came from that's actually not self-awareness self-awareness is again able to pull back able to as the cliche goes right view the our thoughts as the clouds in the sky the cars on the road or what have you Um, that's the awareness that we're speaking of and yes a lot of us are not practiced in it Um, We haven't taught ourselves how to be an observer or how to sit and witness of our behaviors and or our mental world.
0: I heard a therapist say the other day on some podcast that insight is the booby prize of therapy. In other words, to get insight and do nothing else with it, like you're saying, overthinking, overanalyzing, but it's not progressive. It doesn't contribute to momentum and movement. Exactly. I think there's a lot of that out there too. And I think a lot of people read books like yours and others thinking to have read it and put it on the shelf. I read that, I've got those terms now, I've got the new language, as if it's enough. But doing the work, that's what I love about your book, how to do the freaking work, because that's a different issue, eh? (laughs)
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I, I think, and having lived the experience of being yep. on the couch as a client myself, of reading all of the books of Jesus, going to school to be a clinical psychologist, right. I could go ahead as far to say is for some of us, having that increasing amount of insight around the self and not being able to bridge that insight into action can be one of the most disempowering frustrating places to be where some of us even begin to um, as I once did wonder what's wrong with me why can't I change why can I have all of this book knowledge all of this insight about why I'm doing what I'm doing and I still can't actualize the change so what this work is about is about bridging the gap is about honoring that if even for those of us who do have the access and the privilege to be in supportive therapies or or have you know, tools and resources around us that we go to, we still have many moments of our day where that autopilot could be dictating the terms that we're living. So for me, the work is the day in and day out stuff. Um, the how do I become conscious so that I can c- continue to break the patterns that aren't serving me even as I see the patterns in real time, creating that new action is incredibly difficult. Why? Like we've been talking about, because we don't want to. We're comfortable in our familiar. We know what comes next, and that feels safer than the whole world. Even if it's positive, that could come if and when I continue to do these new things.
0: It's funny. I'm smiling because it's so difficult difficult for me not to talk to you, and not turn it into a private therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> you must get that a lot, eh? Um, but I wanted to say to you, what I'm laughing at in my mind is, I heard you speaking with Mel Robbins about this, and I think it's quite common. I have no memory of my childhood at all. It scares the hell out of me because I feel I should. And when I'm trying to do the work and connect current trauma to past cause, to track effect, I can't track it to a day, an event, a conversation, something my mother or father did, or my siblings did. Uh, My dad was abusive, he was a drunkard, he was violent and we all separated as siblings in our teens, I think, to get away from him. But what happens, and you talk to Mel about something you believe happens to us, why we have no memory of our childhood. Could you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so so I discovered similarly, Paul, that um, I had no memory. It was a really gradual discovery at first when You know with friends i would hear them talk about their childhoods how they spent holidays and again a big absent blank for me um and then that would translate to with those friends where a couple they'd be like oh last month when we went and did this thing or that thing and again really little recollection for me um sometimes we don't remember when we have a big bad event that happens to us because of the pain that is you know kind of there present we kind of block it off and we shut down Um, there's many other reasons that we don't remember when we don't have those big, bad things. Um, for some of us living in that detached associated way that I describe myself to live becomes our general way of being, um, when the emotions, when our environments feel overwhelming, um, enough for each of us, and we don't feel we've had the resources to help us. So again, me with a mother who wasn't able to be emotionally available to me, left me in a pretty consistent state of overwhelm. Um, so for me, my protection began to happen when I discovered my spaceship, and I began to live away. Really? So for many of us, we don't have the memories to go back to. And again, this is a very simplification, but a great way I think to conceptualize it, because we really weren't fully present when the things were happening to us. And for some of us, that means the lifetime that we were, say, at home under our abuser's roof or in these complicated relationships. um, Our only way to keep ourselves safe was to be some version of not present. So when we go back, there is a blank movie screen because we weren't fully there to imprint the memory itself. So the usual follow-up to that question um, is, okay, well, can I still heal? And if so, how? Um, And so i'll be the first to acknowledge that I don't have that movie to go back to I don't think it's necessary to write pop the movie of our childhood trauma in to watch it to have all of the feelings right to grip our chair and and then we're healed. Um, Not necessarily what we need to be healing are all of the conditioned habits and patterns that were born out of those moments which are available to you in probably your way of being, regardless if you know why you are the way you are, begin to view how you are. What are the daily habits that you've typically, chances are brought with you from childhood? How do you care for your body? How do you care for your emotional world? Is there an emotional world to care for? Or have you been suppressing it for so long that you don't even know what I'm talking about when I talk about human emotions being a day-to-day part of life, or like you and I are saying, containing messages? You might never hear those messages because you might be so detached and dissociated. How is your way of being in relationships? What are the roles or the masks that you began to wear or assume, again, very early on, born out of what happened? So viewing ourselves consciously now will give us the opportunity to still create healing, seeing the areas where we're not maybe acknowledging or meeting the needs of our physical, emotional or spiritual selves become our pathway to healing. We don't have to go back. Um, For some of us, it's too painful to go back. So even if we know what happened, healing isn't about, like I said, white knuckling it while you just watch what happened to you. Healing is about creating change, breaking the habits that came out of that pain so that, again, you can create a future that's different. For some of us, relationships that are safer um, and that are more authentic to who we are in adulthood.
0: You know, one of the things I've done around the world for the last 10 years is my communication masterclass where I teach, train people in communication. And you are such a brilliant communicator, Um, not just a writer. I think a lot of us are wired to go from our brain to our hand to write rather than our brain to our mouth to speak. Um, And if you're more in one than the other, the other doesn't come easy. But your ability to articulate, and this is the other thing I think that really matters about great communicators like you, It, it it is the commitment you have made to make complicated things simple, so that they're accessible, it becomes mainstream available to us. I think so much of this stuff has been shrouded in mystery and has been hijacked by experts and mystics over the generations, so to have it simplified in the way you do in the book and now, I think is so fantastic. And I'm really grateful for your ability, not just to write a book, but to make it simple for us to access. I think it's a, another string to your ball, a great gift, just by the way, as one communicator who spent my life trying to say things well, I came from a church world where we seemed to pride ourselves in making simple things complicated, that we reversed it. The more complicated it was, <laughs> the more it meant we could control it and control the people with the bits we didn't tell them. Um, So I think what you're doing is brilliant. I think your chapter on boundaries and your work on boundaries is brilliant. I think it's a new word in recent years. It should never have been. I'm aware as you speak about it, we had none in our family as kids and we certainly had none in the church world. Um, But you talk about this term enmeshment with regard to boundaries. Can you say a little bit
1: about that? boundaries um starting with with what a boundary is boundary and enmeshment particularly this term enmeshment right so a boundary is a limit right a separation a point of separation say um we can have boundaries in many different areas we can have physical boundaries emotional boundaries spiritual boundaries and again it's a point of separation where i am me um, and whatever that means in my self-expression and just using you as an example and paul you are you Um, What it means when we say we're enmeshed or another word that goes hand in hand with that, that I very much identify with from my childhood relational experiences is codependency. And again, quite simply, what either of those things mean typically is lacking of boundaries um, or where we blur with someone else. A lot of times in the home, we used an example earlier um, where I said using hearing language, such as us Laperas" or insert whatever your surname is, we do this, right, kind of a group think we believe religion's a great place where there's a lot of that kind of groupthink blurring of boundaries. Here's Mm -hmm. what our belief system is, and you must believe it to be part of this group, et cetera. So it's boundary work in adulthood is A, identifying, witnessing what are our boundaries, what are our limits, how safe do I feel to be who I am in my physical self, in my emotional self, and in my spiritual self in any given relationship. And when the answer is, I don't really feel safe, I'm not really me when I'm with this person, then we have to explore for ourselves what changes we can make, because the caveat with boundaries, um, and I contrast this with another word that I often hear used or, or wondered about interchangeably, ultimatum, a boundary is for us. A boundary is inserting that limit or carving out that new limit, an action we're taking for our own safety so that we can actualize and meet our own needs and or self-express in our own authenticity. An ultimatum is what most of us attempt to do when we point the finger at someone else um, in hopes that they change so that of course, we can experience them and or the relationship we're having with them differently. Um, So boundary work most of us in adulthood, as we explore how we relate in relationships begin to find that we could use some new limits, we could use some ways that we could show up differently in any relationship across the board. Um, And if we do come to that conclusion, our goal within boundary work um, and those of you who will pick up my book. There's a whole chapter where I give not only the steps of boundary setting. I give dialogues. I give scripts to begin to use of how to begin to communicate that boundary, really highlighting again that the work of creating and setting boundaries is for us. How can I create safety now in this relationship so that I can be more me? And that means me now taking a new action and not relying on the person or again, the world around me to change.
0: So good. I appreciate the chapter on finding uh, the interdependence chapter about finding your tribe, chapter 13. And I think I've tracked you for a couple of years now, uh, Nicole, on social media. And I think your book and all that you're posting daily, you are my tribe. You are my tribe. And I think I want to thank you for helping us to find you and to find your voice. I think, I think your book and all that you're doing is going to help a lot of people explain themselves to themselves, which should bring them closer to themselves, this authentic version of them. But it took me years to find, especially in the church world, where being your authentic self was a threat, because anything outside of compliant behavior was a threat to the status quo. So for me, always to be a bit of an outlier and to question and to ask these questions, I always felt it a difficult fit. But I was branded as an awkward person to be kept an eye on, which adds another layer of protection and trauma to you potentially. And for years in the church world, I had to navigate that. And I think, you know, coming out of that 10 years ago, I know there's still things in me today that I spot in others. I have a radar for, of people that are desperately trying to find their tribe, um, but don't know where they are and who they are. I think your book and your work is going to help us find you millions of us. Are you up for a little bit of quick fire for a couple of minutes before I let you go? I am. Let's do it. All right. Something people often get wrong about you.
1: Mm, That I'm healed, that I'm done.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. That
1: I'm speaking from some guru mountain. If you find the mountain, let me know. I'll meet you there. (laughs) Yeah, me too.
0: Last TV show you binge watched?
1: Ooh, um, Mortgage or there's some, some TV show on... Mortgage or Matrimony, a show about whether or not- Is it Netflix kind of thing? Yes, 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 one of those. I watched the whole season. I can't wait for another one. (laughs) Yeah, mine was Queen's Gambit.
0: Have you seen that?
1: Oh, I saw a couple of those episodes. I was really enjoying it. I might have to get back to that.
0: Great show. A favorite movie?
1: Ooh, favorite movie. Um, not really a movie person, so I'm having a hard time calling for because I had a hard time paying attention. Isn't this so interesting? I could only, for a very long time, I could only watch short shows. Um, having a hard time coming up with a favorite movie. I'll let you know if another one pops.
0: All in. right, uh, skip that concert, a memorable concert or show you'll never forget.
1: Ah, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers when I was 21 years old. They played two days wow. before my 21st birthday. So lots of memorable things there.
0: Wow. I've heard that amazing really live. And, and the guy playing with a broken leg, right?
1: <laughs> they're wild. Show. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> Favorite meal? Pizza. There you go. Pizza and Me ice too. cream. Well, I I'm should say honest. that. Yeah. I need dessert after pizza.
0: There you go. <laughs> what books on your nightstand at the moment?
1: Uh, I'm currently reading a book by, I think his name's Dr. Dr. Brian Rice, Daniel Rice, Brian Weiss, Many, Soul, mm-hmm. Many Bodies, One Soul, one of his.
0: Cool, okay. Um, Epitaph, what would you like to be on your gravestone, as it were? Have you thought about legacy and how you want us to remember you?
1: Um, I don't know what I would put in the epitaph, but I have um, thought in terms of my hope for this work is to empower humans to create their own world. Um, So some version of empowerment, um, the word empowerment is so resonating for me in general. So some version of empowering others is my hope.
0: Ordinary moment on any given day that lights you up, an ordinary thing that you can think, I love that moment in my day, like my kids recently got, we had a dog years ago. I had to let go because we've gone so much. They got a dog. That dog loves the hell out of me. So that's my light me up when the dog comes. Something like that. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Anytime I'm in nature, um, I happen to live by the beach. Actually, when we get off this call today, I have a bit of a break before my next recording. So I'll be heading to the beach, the ocean. Um, nature for me has always been my place. Um, of connectivity, the place that I actually could be the most present when I really struggled, even in childhood. Um, and it lights me up because I'm here. I'm seeing light, that. so nature.
0: Last time you hand wrote a note, card or letter, a handwritten note, card or letter. Last time you did that.
1: Last week, I've been writing a lot of those and wow. books and sending with all of the book uh, deliveries going out, writing a lot of notes. Um, in books. So more more recently than I think I typically do. And it's been actually- Are nice, you left nice or
0: right-handed, Nicole? Right-handed. Okay. Finally, most grateful for in this past year?
1: Uh, the community around me, people like yourself, um, humans that I feel much more authentically present to and connected with. And honestly, who've been the trailblazers um, for me and my source of empowerment when it gets difficult um, looking to everyone, whether again, it's other mentors in the fields that I've learned from and or members in the community. I'm so inspired by self healers on a daily basis, um, seeing them show up for themselves. So for me, that it's the community by far.
0: I love that. Thanks for doing that. And what next finally, what do you do next? Do you feel this like book is like a peak that you're not kind of, Come down from now, or are you another peak in sight already that you're going for? What's next?
1: I am just getting started, Paul. I am super excited. I have so much stuff and creations I want to put out in the world. Um, So this is just the beginning that you're hearing from me. Um, I always plan to continue to to deliver all of the free resources on the Instagram page. So that's never going anywhere. Um, In addition to a lot of things that I want to create for the world, for the community, and the self healer circle and beyond. So we're just getting started.
0: And how can people find you, Tell us your Instagram?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So each and every day I'm over there where it all started at the.holistic.psychologist. Like I mentioned, there's an incredible community of self healers um, in the comments, very active, sharing their own journeys of healing. So if anyone out there is listening and is feeling a bit lonely or is feeling, you know, driven to, to find their people, um, know that they, they're there waiting for you. There's millions of us online. Um, Also have a YouTube channel, anyone interested in the YouTube format, World of Teaching that I offer um, weekly videos, you can search The Holistic Psychologist in YouTube.
0: That's great. Well, listen, I want to respect your time and say a massive thank you to you for your time and for all that you are doing. You are a beautiful human being and the planet is better off for having you on it. And I'm glad we met. Lovely to meet you. Hope we can keep in touch in the future. I wish you all the best, seriously, for everything in your heart still to do. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Paul. I say the same right back to you. Thank you and everyone out there listening for carving out the time um, to hear me speak today. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world.
0: Well, thanks again for listening to today's podcast. I hope you found it beneficial. And uh, I know time is precious commodity for us all. But I would love it if you would take the time to write a review or comment. And above all, maybe subscribe to my podcast channel. Thank you.